In Job 31, verse 35, Job cries out, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me that my prosecutor had written a book. At a kid's summer camp, a counselor was leading a discussion on creation. He explained why God created the clouds and the rocks and the rivers and the trees and the animals, that God had a good reason for all that he had created. That's when one little boy asked, if God has a good purpose for everything, then why did he create poison ivy? Well, his question was followed by dead silence. The counselor didn't know how to answer. Finally, another child came to the rescue. He explained to the class, the reason God created poison ivy is because he wants us to know there's a, certain, there's a few things we just need to keep our cotton-picking hands off of. A good explanation indeed. I believe when we get to heaven, we'll discover that every story begun in this life does finish with a happy ending. There is a good reason for everything God does. The problem, though, is that in this life, we don't always see his purpose. There are issues in life, like poison ivy, that cause us great grief and for no apparent reason. Some situations appear to have no sane, logical explanation, and we wonder why. How do you respond when bad things happen and God gives no reason why? As Christians, we believe that God is sovereign. He does whatever he likes, whenever he likes, however he likes, to whomever he likes. Hey, God rules the universe, both good and evil. God is the boss. Read the first chapter of the book of Job, and you'll discover that Satan can't harm a single hair on Job's head without first getting God's permission. Nothing happens in our lives, or in the universe for that matter, that isn't at the very least permitted by God. Of course, God's sovereignty is a wonderful doctrine when circumstances are pleasant, when things are going well for us. Oh, we're delighted that God has chosen to bless us. But what's your attitude when life takes a turn for the worse and for no apparent reason? In my early years as a Christian, I had a friend who was a captivating Bible teacher. Dan had a growing ministry. He was a husband and a father of five kids. His teaching and his ministry was influencing thousands of lives for Jesus, including my own. I'll never forget the day I heard on the radio the prop plane he had been flying had slammed into the side of a mountain. The news broke my heart. And I can remember crying out, Lord, why? Look at all he's doing for your kingdom. Why did this happen? This is also how I respond today when I hear of a hurricane that devastates an island or that floods out a coastline, or a family on vacation killed by a drunk driver, or a virtuous woman who's been raped, or a school shooter who targets innocent kids, or a hardworking husband who gets laid off and can no longer feed his family, or a child born with a severe handicap, or a follower of Jesus diagnosed with a cancer. What happens to your faith when you encounter these kinds of terrible situations? How do you respond when bad stuff happens to good people, even God's people, and you see nothing good result? 
Have you ever asked why? Oh my. Have you ever screamed why? How do you deal with the poison ivy in your life? Well, understand, Job dealt with plenty of poison ivy. In the first two chapters of the book of Job, we learn how that overnight, Job lost everything. His fortune, his family, his fitness, even his friends. And usually a man in such distress can lean on the comfort of a devoted wife, but not Job. You remember what Mrs. Job told him? Why don't you just curse God and die? That's not exactly what you want to hear from the missus after a hard day at the office. I'm sure you've probably heard of the stress factor index. It's a set of numerical values that try to quantify the amount of stress produced by certain events in our lives. For example, the death of a spouse equals a 100. The death of a close family member, a 63. Fired from a job is a 47. A pregnancy is a 40. That's for the wife. It's like 140 for the husband. And on and on it goes. The experts say that 79% of those whose stress factor index hits 300 plus suffer a major illness as a consequence. When I calculated Job's stress factor index, it added up to 650. That's twice the danger level. Hey, if you think you got problems, man, just check out Job. And here's the kicker. Job did nothing to deserve what had happened to him. Job gets vindicated from the outset. Chapter 1, verse 1 tells us, Job was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. In chapter 2, verse 3, the Lord himself says that all that happened to Job came upon him, and I quote, without a cause. Yes, Job was human, and like all humans, he was a sinner. But he had done nothing specific to warrant his calamity. If you doubt Job's devotion to God, just look at his initial reaction to his loss in chapter 1, verse 21. There he utters these words, Naked I came into my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. To me, that is one of the strongest statements of faith in all the Scripture. In Job chapter 1, verse 22, it sums up Job's part in his many afflictions. It says, in all this, Job did not sin. Now, in Job chapters 1 and 2, we are told why all this devastation occurred in Job's life. You see, Job got caught in the middle of a cosmic showdown between God and Satan. One day, the devil appeared before God in the heavenly host. And like a proud papa, God mentioned the piety of his servant Job. Satan scoffed. He says, God, you've blessed Job so abundantly, why wouldn't he serve you? You spoiled him. Just allow a little hardship in this man's life and he'll turn on you in a heartbeat. Ironically, rather than being punished for some evil deed, Job's agony was caused by just the opposite. God was so proud of Job's devotion that he staked his own honor on Job's reaction. Without knowing it, Job had become the appointed protector of God's glory. You know, whenever I read the book of Job, I'm struck by an often overlooked fact, and that's this. 
Job never read the first two chapters of the book of Job. He never did. We're told why he suffered, but not Job. Until the day he died, Job never got an explanation for his calamity. God never told Job why. But that sure didn't stop his friends from trying to answer the question. And for the bulk of the book, chapters 3 through 31, three pals, if you want to call them that, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, each take turns offering their explanations for the cause of Job's suffering. I figure they were golfing buddies. They were a foursome that had a standing tea time every Saturday morning. And when Job didn't show up one week, they came to check on their friend. Well, when they arrive, they find Job. He's sitting in the middle of the ash heap. He's scratching his oozing sores with a clay shard, a broken piece of pottery. For seven days, they just sit there in silence, mourning for their friend. As it turns out, just sitting there with Job, being there for Job, was really the only benefit that they offered. For when they open their mouths, they begin to torture Job with erroneous counsel. In chapter 16, verse 2, he tells us how much help they were. He says, miserable comforters are you all. You see, Job's golfing buddies, like many people today, were trapped in a restrictive, defective theology. I like to call it a kindergarten theology. It's the simplistic view, it's the belief that in this life, sin is always punished and good is always rewarded. Thus, when bad things happen, it means that the victim must have committed some sin. Now, as kids, our experiences with mommy and daddy seem to confirm this belief. Parents see to it that our good deeds are prized and that our disobedience is punished. But then we move out into the real world and we discover this is not always how life pans out. Bad things do happen to good people. Often bad people get away with their crimes. Circumstances are not always just. Life isn't always fair. Being a bit of a golfer myself, I've noticed how that golfing buddies particularly like to hold to this simplistic kindergarten theology. When a golfer hits an errant shot off into the woods, it caroms off a tree trunk, bounces back into the middle of the fairway, He'll often turn to his partner and he'll laugh and he'll say, well, looks like I'm living right. As if holy living entitled you to favorable breaks while unholy living left you in the rough. I wish life were always that straightforward, but it's not. And this is what Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar refuse to admit. They become adamant. For 29 chapters, they scrutinized Job to uncover the slightest chink in his armor on which they can blame his demise. At points in the dialogue, they even make up accusations. Job's three friends try every tactic imaginable to pin a sin on Job. Tragically, there are also Christians today who hold to this same faulty theology. Listen to most TV preachers, and you'll hear them teach a kindergarten theology. Do the right thing, and you'll be rich. You'll be healthy and happy. You'll be driving out Lexus in no time. Trust me, TBN would have never invited Job to host a show. I have a friend who suffers from chronic asthma. She's a godly lady. She's a woman of prayer. 
Yet her Christian friends insisted that her suffering had to be the result of some sin in her life. Her friends, like Job's friends, went to great efforts to pin a sin on her. It reminds me of a Peanuts cartoon strip. You like Peanuts? Yeah. There's this Peanuts cartoon strip, Snoopy standing there next to his doghouse. It's been burned to the ground by a fire. And Snoopy's sobbing. I've lost my pool, my Van Gogh, all of my keepsakes. That's when Lucy approaches, and you know Lucy. She snaps at him. She says, I can tell you why your house burned down. You sinned. And Snoopy responds with one of the best theological answers ever uttered. In fact, Snoopy sounds a lot like Job when he answers, See, here's the problem with this kind of defective theology. It backs you into a corner so that when bad stuff happens in your life, you only have two options. Either God failed or you sinned. And that's why Job's friends insist that the problem is Job. If it isn't in their minds, it means that God has failed, and they're not about to entertain that possibility. In reality, though, neither assertion was true. The real cause of Job's sufferings was hidden in the heavens. Job knows there is a reason. There has got to be another option. He just doesn't see it. And learning why becomes the burning issue in Job's life. Once, two Americans, they had traveled down to Mexico to open up a bungee jumping operation. Well, as they erected the tower, a curious crowd of locals all gathered around to watch. Well, finally, it came time for a test jump. One of the guys, he dove off the platform. But when he bounced back up, his partner noticed that he was a little scraped up. He gasped, oh, no, the cord must be too long. He tried to grab his friend, and he missed him. Well, the second time the guy bounced back up to the platform, he was in worse shape. He had some bruises, some broken ribs. Again, his buddy tried to grab him, and he missed him. Well, the third time he rose to the platform, the poor guy was so badly beaten, he was nearly unconscious. This time, his sidekick lunged and grabbed him and pulled him in. And he asked him, he said, man, was the cord too long? That's when his partner replied, no, the cord was just fine, but what's a pinata? <laughs> if you didn't get it, ask somebody later. <laughs> hey, sometimes life gets rough. It'll beat you up and you don't know why. Or worse, it treats your partner, your spouse, or your coworker, or even your child like a pinata, and you get no explanation. He loves you, Lord. Why did this happen to him? Lord, she's such a good person, not her. We've all asked these questions, haven't we? Job, too, was a good and godly person, but virtue didn't insulate him from the pain in his life. And remember, it wasn't Job's sin that made him a target of hardship for hardships. It was his goodness. Don't be deceived. Just because a person is hurting doesn't mean they're sinning. And just because they're thriving doesn't necessarily mean that God is pleased. Hey, it does pay to be good and godly. But payday doesn't always come in this life. In the here and now, calamity can strike even the godliest among us. Difficulties can hit without explanation. Faith doesn't always get a reason.
Don't let life back you into a corner. When things go wrong, we often think that there's only two conclusions. Either God failed or I'm a failure. And since none of us are going to blame God, it's got to be me. And so we beat ourselves up. But remember the story of Job. When bad stuff happens, it doesn't mean that God has failed, nor does it mean that you have sinned. There could be a reason hidden from view. Only heaven knows the whole story. And God is expecting you and I to trust in him. And this is why our responses on earth really do matter. For in a mysterious way, unknown to you and me, God's reputation may be hanging on the way that we handle a hassle or a hardship or a hindrance. God's honor in heaven, his glory, may be riding on your reaction to the twists and turns life throws your way. To me, the message of Job is the most practical in all of the Bible. It ups the ante on everything that happens in my life. Suddenly, my every reaction becomes strategic. Think about it. Every eye in heaven may be fixed on you to see how you handle that illness or that lie told about you or that lawsuit filed against you. Will you fold or will you be faithful? This book teaches us a vital lesson, which is this. The stress in my life may just be a test of my faith. Listen, Satan has accused the Almighty of stacking the deck, of buying our devotion with his blessing. Satan assumes that God is nothing more to you and me than a meal ticket. And he's thrown down the gauntlet. He has challenged God, nixed their blessing, and they'll stop their devotion. Do you realize that God may have chosen you to prove otherwise? God's character may be on the line in heaven, and it's your response to difficulty that wins the day. I'm just saying the stakes may be a lot higher than any of us realize. The one certainty is that our reactions really do matter. I have no doubt that Job would have gladly suffered for God if he had just been told the effect that his faithfulness was having in heaven. But Job never got a hint. Understand, Job's greatest grief was not caused by his material losses or even the boils on his body. Job's most excruciating pain was not knowing why. I found that the best pain reliever by far is not Advil or Tylenol 3 or even Demerol. It's an explanation. Hey, if there's a good reason behind my suffering, then I tend to rise to the occasion. But how do we respond when God refuses to give us a reason? It's like going to the doctor to get a shot. I don't like shots. A little kid comes out with me when it comes to shots. But if I'm told the reason for the shot, I can accept it. I can endure it. I might even be thankful for it. But what if I was given a series of shots without being told their reason? Trust me, I wouldn't be as tolerant. In fact, I'd get downright ugly and upset. I would start pounding my fist down on the counter, and I'd demand to know why. And that is exactly what Job begins to do. He begins to pound his fist. Over the course of the dialogue with his three friends, Job demands more and more to know why. In fact, in chapter 7, verse 11, Job even grows bitter. He moans these words. I will not restrain my mouth. 
I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. It's interesting the word complain occurs more times in Job than any other book of the Bible. Did you know that nearly half of the complaints uttered in Scripture fall from the lips of this one man, Job? We speak of the patience of Job, but the person in this story with the real patience was God. God was the one who had to put up with Job's spewing bitterness. See, here's what happens. Job loses perspective, and it's easy for a sufferer to do. Job forgets who God is, his holiness, his righteousness. Job grows bold and brash. As he questions God in Job's mind, in his own estimation, Job becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, and God becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. It's been said in asking why Job loses his way. And by the time we get to our text, the verse that I read to you this morning, chapter 31, verse 35, Job believes God owes him an answer. In fact, he demands it in writing. He says, oh, that the Almighty would answer me that my prosecutor had written a book. Hey, God, I need a reason for all this, and I want it in print. Arrogance has replaced Job's innocence. Job has become so sure of himself that he started to doubt God. In fact, at one point in the dialogue, Job says to his friends, if my only options are I've sinned, or God has failed, then God has failed, for I certainly haven't sinned. Job, who do you think you are? Job comes perilously close to blasphemy. In his commentary on Job, author Don Baker, he makes this point about pain. He writes, pain speaks a strange language. It plays funny tricks on us. It makes us think things, say things, even believe things that are not true. When pain bores its way through human flesh and into the human spirit and just sits there and hurts and hurts, the mind becomes clouded and the brain begins to think strange thoughts like God is dead or he's gone fishing or he just doesn't care. You see, pain was having this kind of an effect on Job. And toward the end of Job's discourses, he starts challenging God to speak. He charges God with giving him a raw deal and accuses God of being unfair. In his attempts to vindicate himself, Job accuses God. Job is more into proving his own innocence than he is in upholding God's justice. In short, Job cops an attitude. Always remember, there are chapters in our story that God has yet to write. The Zophars can only speak so far. God had a glorious outcome for Job. In the end, he got double the blessings he had before. But until the day he died, he never learned the why behind his trials. Some situations have reasons that will only make sense in heaven. Today we live a temporal, earthbound existence. That is why it's wrong for us, to, from our limited perspective, to question or criticize an eternal God. We're told in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. 
Never forget one of the first rules in theology. Where God has placed a period, don't you change it to a question mark. If God doesn't offer you an explanation, learn to live without one. Don't push it. Ultimatums don't work on God. We need to trust in His wisdom. Here's the big question for you and me this morning. Can we trust God even when we can't trace Him? Oh, it's easy to praise God when we see His hand at work, when His blessings, even His lessons are tangible. But is our faith alive enough to survive in the dark? Did you hear about the four passengers on the train who was traveling from Atlanta, Georgia to Boston, Massachusetts? All four riders were seated in the same compartment. There was an Atlanta Falcons fan. It was one of those haughty New England Patriots fans. There was a gorgeous young woman and there was an elderly lady. Well, everyone was very cordial to each other until the train passed through this long, dark tunnel. Suddenly there was a loud kiss followed by an equally loud slap. When the train exited the tunnel, each passenger just sat there quietly, looking at each other, trying to interpret what the noises had meant. Well, the beautiful woman thought, isn't that odd? A Patriots fan tries to kiss an elderly woman and not me. Well, the elderly lady, she thought, my, that young woman, she's a good girl. She has some fine morals. The New England fan thought, man, that Falcons fan is a smart guy. He steals a kiss and I get slapped. While the Atlanta fan sat there gloating, perfect, I kiss the back of my hand, slap a Patriots fan, and nobody ever knows. (laughs) Sometimes things happen in the dark. God chooses not to reveal his specific reasons. And if we're not careful, we can draw the wrong conclusions, can't we? Reminds me of the little boy who was scared of the dark. Late one night, his mother asked him to fetch the broom off the back porch. He balked. He said, but mommy, it's dark out there. The mother told him, said, honey, don't worry. Jesus is always with you. He's with you wherever you go, even when you're in the dark. The little guy walked to the back door. He cracked it open a fraction of an inch, and then he shouted out, hey, Jesus, if you're out there, how about handing me that broom? Realize God wants us all to learn that Jesus is with us even in the dark places. Well, how do you react when circumstances occur you don't deserve? Have you grown bitter? Have you become angry, even angry at God? Have you been demanding an explanation? Hey, is your name Job? Well, let me show you how God finally responds to Job. In chapter 38, God appears to Job. But not to answer his questions. No, no. God takes a most unusual tact. He comes to Job asking questions, not answering them. And for five chapters, God asks Job a series of questions he can't possibly answer. A total of 70 unanswerable questions. The Almighty is about to show his servant Job he doesn't know as much as he thinks he does. It's time for God to put Job back in his place. Well, God appears to Job in the whirlwind, and he says in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 38, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? 
In other words, who's this guy who I've been listening to who doesn't know what he's talking about? Now, prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. It's time for you, Job, to eat some humble pie. God is about to remind Job that you spell the word God, G-O-D, not J-O-B. In verse 4, God begins his quiz. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You see, Job has been instructing God on how to run the universe, but here God makes it clear that he doesn't really need Job's help. God was doing fine long before Job came along. God asked Job, tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. God even gets sarcastic with Job. He's saying, okay, Job, who was it holding the other end of the tape measure when I measured out the universe? Was it you? I don't think so. Throughout the book, Job's incessant questioning of God's wisdom implied that he could do a better job of running the universe than God. But could he? Can you? On and on, these questions continue. God keeps firing these queries at Job, and he has no way to answer. You know, it's interesting. As Job questioned God, in Job's estimation, he grew larger and larger, while God grew smaller and smaller. But when the roles are reversed and God is questioning Job, now suddenly in Job's thinking, it's God who's becoming larger and larger and larger again. And it's Job who's becoming smaller and smaller and tiny. Job is getting taken down a notch or two. He's getting whittled down to size. Up against an infinite God, a finite Job knows very little. What right does he have to question or criticize the Almighty? I mean, who does Job think he is? I mean, what if I were playing golf with Phil Mickelson, one of the greatest golfers to ever swing a stick? I mean, what right would I have to pull old Phil aside and say, hey, Phil, let old Sandy give you some pointers. I can help you with your swing, buddy. Just listen to me. Who's kidding who? But Job is being just as arrogant. He's been trying to coach God on how to run the universe. But who in the world does Job think he is? You see, Job has gotten way out of line. Here's a great quote for you. If there's anything a sufferer needs, it is not an explanation, but a fresh new look at God. You see, we think we need an answer that we'll never be satisfied until we know why. But what we really need is a vision of God. For when God appears, the reason for the trial no longer matters. All that really matters is the glory and beauty and excellences of God. See, Job thinks he's learned his lesson. Listen to his reply to God in chapter 40, verse 4. He says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Now, at first, it might seem as if Job has gotten the message, but I don't think so. Job has simply gone from pounding to now pouting. From beating his fist to now sticking out his lip. In essence, he's saying, okay, God, you win. You've made your point. From now on, I'll just shut up and serve you. You see, Job agrees to serve the Lord, but you can bet he's going to serve God with a grudge. And I got to ask you, do you know anybody 
who's been serving God with a grudge. Job has accepted God's sovereignty, for he has no other choice, but he doesn't really like it. Realize, God doesn't want us to pound or pout. There is a third option. God wants us to praise him for who he is, come what may. God wants us to embrace his sovereignty with a loving, trusting wholeheartedness. You can say lovingly, Lord, thy will be done. Or you can say begrudgingly, all right then, God, have it your way. And here Job is doing the latter. He's giving in only because he has no other choice. And God is not through correcting Job's attitude. For again, God comes to Job in the whirlwind. And in chapter 40, verse 7, he says, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. God didn't like the first answers he got from Job, and so he has some more questions. And in chapter 40, God points to two enormous animals, the behemoth and the leviathan. And he asks Job if he can contain them, let alone create them. Job seems pretty puny when pitted up against these mighty forces. See, God is relentless in his humbling of Job, for he is after in Job what he wants in us. Not reluctance, friends, but repentance. God wants Job as well as you and me to rejoice in his sovereignty, to worship him despite our situation, because he is worthy to be worshiped. God wants us to acknowledge that he not only runs the universe, but he runs our lives, and he is better at it than we are. God does all things well all of the time. Today, when a church builds a sanctuary, the architect is careful to optimize all of the sight lines. It doesn't matter where you're sitting in the room. You can see all that's going on up front. There's not a bad seat in the house, not a bad view. But the Reformation architects of the great cathedrals in Europe, they had the opposite idea. They deliberately created worship venues where your view was blocked by a pillar or a rail or maybe an awkward angle where you couldn't see everything going on up front. It was a reminder that some truths about God are hidden, that no one knows all there is to know about God, that we all worship God from a limited vantage point. Well, Job finally realizes this truth in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. This time when Job answers, he gets it right. He says, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job is a humble man now. Obviously, Job has had a change of attitude. Realize, friend, Job never did learn why but he learned something much more valuable. He learned who. And when you really know who, you don't need to know why. 
There are people I've met whose chief ambition in getting to heaven is to get answers to their questions. they got a whole list. And I'm certain they'll get their answers, but I am just as certain that when they get to heaven, their answers won't be nearly as important as they thought. For when we see the beauties and the glories of our Lord Jesus, all of the perplexities, all of the questions will be overshadowed. In the end, the who will swallow up all of the whys. Following the difficult days of World War II, King George VI of England, he made a statement to his countrymen about the uncertainties of the coming new year. He wrote, I said to the man at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may walk safely into the unknown. But he said to me, go out into the darkness and put your hand in the hand of God and it shall be to you better than the light and safer than the known. Imagine that, friends, the hand of God Better than the light, even safer than the known. Some of you are walking out into uncertain futures and you've been questioning God. Don't you think a better approach would be to grip his hand just a little tighter? Once there was an old man, he was taking a walk with his grandson, his young grandson. When he asked the boy, he said, son, do you know where you are? Nope, grandpa, I don't. Well, son, do you know how far you are from home? No, sir. Well, son, it sounds like to me you're lost. Little boy just grinned. He said, nope, Grandpa, I can't be lost. The grandpa asked him, he said, well, why are you so sure? That's when the little guy replied, I can't be lost, Grandpa, because I'm with you. And this is what God wants us to learn. That even when we don't understand, even with no explanation, we are never lost when we're with God. He can be trusted. So, how do you cope with the poison ivy in your life? Here's what Job would tell us. God is sovereign. He is a big God. He takes orders from no one. He does as he pleases without getting our permission or giving us an explanation. That's why we need to turn off our complaints and our doubts and our questions, and we need to turn on our praise. God is worthy to be worshipped. Love God. Don't fight Him. Trust God. Don't question Him. Real faith doesn't need to know why when it's certain of who. Always remember this statement. What's over my head is still under God's feet. Can you say it with me? You ready? What's over my head is still under God's feet. Now, will you say it with me like you mean it? (laughs) Would you? Three, two, one. What's over my head is still under God's feet. God loves you. He is so proud of you that he has staked his honor on your reactions. Imagine this. God believes that your response to difficulty is going to bring him glory. 